Great, thanks for that, Sumi. Yeah, as Simon said, we are starting, as it says in the front of the uh, news sheet, a new series today called Balance of Power. We're looking at a Christian response to power as manifest in a few areas. Um, we're looking at God and race next week. That's with uh, a lady called Chinny McDonald who's going to come and speak to us. And she works for Christian Aid and is also a regular contributor to Radio 4, Radio 2, Thought for the Day, those kind of things. Um, I heard her speak on this topic uh, a few months ago and uh, she really was fantastic. So that's definitely one uh, not to miss. And then we're doing God and Empire and then we're finding, uh, we're ending the, um, the series by looking at God and power. Is God all-powerful and what does that mean? Um, but this morning we are looking at God and class and a story to start us off. In my much younger days, uh, many years ago, I once went on a stag weekend uh, to Frankfurt. Um, it was a university friend of mine and this friend had gone to private school, then he'd come to university, which is where I met him in Swansea, and then he'd gone off to law college and then he'd become a solicitor. And so the guys that went on this stag do were from all of those places and it's fair to say that the friends that he had made at university were slightly less posh than the friends that he had made in private school, law college, or while he was a solicitor. Um, the first day that we were there, we all met at this uh, bar underneath the hotel. We were all coming in on different flights, and so we said, right, let's all get there, and let's all just meet at the bar downstairs. And so we all did, we kind of came in, ones and twos. And then when we were all together, one of the guys who he knew from um, law college said, oh, should we just grab some lunch here before you go out and do anything else? And somebody else grabbed a menu, and they said, yeah, let's just do that. Looked at the menu, and one of the guys said, oh, 25 euros for a steak baguette and chips. That sounds reasonable. Let's eat here. And I looked at my friend Luke, who was one of the other university friends, and we kind of gave each other a glance that suggested this might be an expensive weekend. Um, the day after this, we were sat outside a pub, me and Luke, and one of the private school boys came over and sat next to us, and he said to me, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from a, a little town in, um, in southeast Wales. You won't have heard of it. It's called uh, Ebervale. And he said, is that anywhere near Abergavenny? And I said, oh, um, Yes, it is actually. It's, um, it's about a 20-minute drive away. Actually, um, the nearest hospital to Ebervale is in Abergavenny. That's where I was. But I've been to Abergavenny, he said. Oh, great. Okay, so it's your story. Um, and so uh, <laughs> I said, um, why were you in Abergavenny? And he said, because I go hunting, and the best riding boots in the whole of the UK are to be bought in Abergavenny. Again, I didn't really have a lot to say to this. I'm not of many, no, I've done, never done much hunting, to be honest or even any riding, or don't really know anything about riding boots. So he started to explain to me about these riding boots, about which I had obviously zero interest, but you know, he was going to tell me the story anyway. And he started to explain why these riding boots were the best in the UK. You went there, you got your feet measured properly, and then they made them to measure. And he explained all this story, and he said, and they cost 900 pounds. And I said, 900 pounds? I'd want new legs for 900 pounds. <laughs> You can imagine that didn't go down all that well. And so he started to explain in even more detail about these riding boots, what the uppers were made of, what the soles were made of. And then he said, and do you know what was inside the riding boots? And my friend Luke leaned over and went, 800 pounds? <laughs> this guy didn't speak to either me or Luke for the rest of the weekend. So we're looking at God and class this morning. And in one respect, you'd think this would be an easy one for me. Lots of you will know I'm from a pretty solidly working class community in South Wales. Um, 
And I'm quite conscious of my class, particularly since moving to London. My grandfathers were a miner and a steel worker. And so you'd think this is a bit of a slam dunk for me. I should point out really here that this talk contains more references to South Wales than the Gavin and Stacey Christmas special did. But <laughs> I think when you're talking about class, you can't really separate it from your background, from your upbringing. So I'll apologize for that in advance. But that's the story that underpins all of this. So I could really easily spend the next 25 minutes or so extolling the virtues of the working class, throw in a few more stories like the one in Frankfurt, and honestly, I've got loads of them. Like when I started working for a currency exchange firm, and on my very first day at lunchtime, I went to Sainsbury's and bought a meal deal, and I came back to my desk, and I opened my bag, and I got the sandwich out, and I got the crisps out, and I got the Diet Coke out, and I put them on my desk, and the guy sat next to me, looked at me, and he went, meal deal, is it? Literally the first words he'd ever spoken to me. And I said, yeah. Again, what do you say to that? And he looked at me, dead in the eyes, and he went, what, are you poor? <laughs> and then half an hour later, he went out to get his lunch, and I kid you not, he got half a dressed lobster, and he sat at his desk <laughs> eating a dressed lobster. I have loads of these stories, but we should really not move on, and we should really move on, because the thing is, it's not as easy as that, is it? It really isn't as simple as saying working class good, everything else bad. It isn't straightforward. And the point of this talk is definitely not to make anybody who had a different upbringing to me feel bad about their background or their upbringing or their privilege or the situation that they're currently in. Yeah, I came from a working class background, but I live in central London now in one of the most expensive cities on the planet. I have a degree, I have a master's, and this time next week, after the service finishes, I'll be making my way to Oxford, where I'm studying at Oxford University to finish my um, Baptist ministry training. That, I'll have three days in an Oxford college, and that is about as far away from a working class culture as you can possibly imagine. And I am not immune to all of these things. I've just come from spending Christmas in my hometown where I spent a considerable amount of time complaining about how the best coffee you can get in the entire town is from Costa. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I feel like many people, myself included, can romanticize working class culture. There is a lot that's good about working class culture, but you know, let's be honest here. There are reasons why my parents forced me and my sister to work hard at school so that we could get good enough qualifications, so that we could go to university and we would have the option of getting good jobs and not coming back to our hometown. This is a Welsh comedian and singer-songwriter, a guy called Max Boyce. He was famous in the 70s for writing comedy songs about the Welsh rugby team. But before that, he'd been a folk singer. And he'd also worked down the local mine in a place called Glenith. Um, and when he was singing these comedy songs about rugby around the rugby clubs in South Wales, he would often sing some of the old folk songs that he wrote while he was a miner. One of these that he wrote was called Do It's Hard. Do is Welsh for God. God, it's hard. And it's told from the perspective of a miner who loses his job when the mine gets closed down. And the last verse says, but I know the local magistrate, she's got a job for me. Although it's only counting buttons in the local factory, but we get coffee breaks, coffee breaks and tea. And now I know those dusty mines have seen the last of me because it's hard. 
you it's hard. It's harder than they will ever know. And Max Boyce would sing this song to rugby clubs full of people who were still working in the steelworks, still working in the mines, still working underground. And you could hear a pin drop. Working class life can be hard, and we shouldn't romanticize that. A few years ago, when he was standing for the Labour leadership, Jeremy Corbyn gave uh, an interview where he said that if he became leader and the Labour government got in, that he would reopen some of the mines. And it was the kind of interview that got a great reception in the kind of left-wing media and in the places like Islington, where no one's ever been underground other than to catch a tube. But what working-class people miss is not the mining. It's not the work which was long and was hard and was dangerous. What working-class people miss is not just the steady employment, we'll come on to a bit of that later, but the community that was formed around the mine, around the steelworks. That close community is still a massive strength of working-class culture. A while ago, I read a survey which said that Britain is the loneliness capital of Europe, and that London is the loneliest place to live in Britain. Another survey said that 60% of 18 to 34-year-olds in London said that they often felt lonely. That's not people in their 80s who are widowed and are living on their own. That's three in five people between the ages of 18 and 34 what's meant to be the most sociable part of your life. Loads of the stories that you read about loneliness in London are basically the same story. So I grew up somewhere else, and I moved to London for a job. I found a flat, any old flat, because I didn't really know much about London, and I just found somewhere that was close to my work. And, and, and I, it was the first flat I could afford. And, and then I started the job, and my workmates are okay, and sometimes I go out for a drink with them after work, but that's about it, really. And then I go home, and I don't know my neighbors. Everyone's kind of shut away, and so I feel a bit lonely. How many of us have heard that story? How many of us have experienced a bit of that story? We've all heard it, haven't we? Especially the bit about not knowing our neighbours. That's a real issue in central London. How many of us know the name of our next-door neighbour? See, there are a few hands up, but the number of people with their hands down would be completely unthinkable in a working-class community. You always knew your neighbours. One of the things that I really miss is people just popping in. When I was a kid, no one came around for an evening meal. You didn't invite your friends around for a meal in the evening. My parents were never invited out for a dinner party. No one ever came around for a full meal. But people popped in all the time. They just pop in for a cup of tea. When I went to university and started getting jobs and all this kind of stuff, and people invited me around for a meal in the evening, I didn't know that it was polite to bring a bottle of wine with you. I know it sounds like a really stupid thing, but I had no idea that that was a thing. Where I'm from, people just call in unannounced, which I think is probably another working class, middle class dividing line. People just popped in for a cup of tea. 
And I reckon having somewhere to pop in has got to help alleviate some of that loneliness, hasn't it? Please know that if ever you find yourself around, you're always welcome to pop into ours for a cup of tea or even for a coffee from my very posh, very middle-class coffee machine. <laughs> so there are definitely some great things about growing up working class, but it can be tough too. I think one of the misconceptions is that working class always equals poor. It doesn't. I think that's another misconception that people have. Um, loads of people in my hometown are comfortably well off because partly the house, the cost of living, cost of housing is so much less there than it is here. When we were at home over Christmas, I noticed the for sale sign on this. This used to be the church that I grew up in. and uh, It was sold off about 20 odd years ago. And loads of damp issues and uh, the roof was falling in. So the church sold it off and somebody bought it and turned it into a and b And now it's three buildings, the old church, a, a room at the back and the old manse. It's got 16 bedrooms apparently, 11 bathrooms, five en suites, massive living rooms, massive sitting rooms, loads of other space, loads of off-road parking. And it's 50 grand cheaper than this three-bedroom flat around the corner from here, which is on Lower Marsh. <laughs> Um, so working class doesn't always equal poor, but it is true that working class communities suffer more than most from poverty. My hometown has a population of 19,000 people, and in 1979, 12,000 people were employed at the local steelworks. By 1990, only 1,000 people were employed there, and that is now shut down and long gone. Now, you can imagine that the impact that making 12,000 people redundant in a town of 19,000 has on the economy there. Unemployment rates now in my hometown are the highest of anywhere in the UK. And it has the second lowest average salary in the UK. But there are also issues on our doorstep. This church is based in Lambeth, which is one of the top 20 most deprived districts in the UK. So we're based in an area of huge deprivation, and the makeup of our church, let's be honest, does not reflect this. We are not representative of our local area. Should we be concerned about this? Should this bother us? I think it should bother us. It bothers me anyway. It bothers me that if I'm absolutely honest, I am more likely to see somebody from this local community in our food bank or our death advice centre than I am in our church on a Sunday morning. That bothers me. Now, this next bit is important. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying that you have to come to a church service. Our theology is broader than that, isn't it? Our theology is wider than that. It's wider than just being all about our church services. We talk all the time about how people don't need to be here on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock to be included in our community or to be loved by God. But it's also true that this can be a place of community and of healing and of hope. We had beer and carols just before Christmas at the local pub and somebody came up to me that evening, I was standing at the bar, and somebody came up to get a drink, and he bought a drink, and he picked it up, and he turned around to me, and as he was walking away, he said, you know what, I started coming to this church a couple of months ago, and it's totally changed my life. And then he turned around and he walked off. 
I started coming to this church a couple of months ago, and it has totally changed my life. I believe that everyone's in, that everyone is loved by God, regardless of whether they come to a Sunday service or not. But coming to this building on a Sunday, on a regular basis, hopefully helps you to realize that you are loved by God, that you are loved by this community. Hopefully helping you to surround yourself with other people who will help you to become the best version of yourself, will help you, as Jesus says in Luke, John chapter 10, to experience not just any kind of life, but life in all its fullness. Our Bible reading this morning said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is from a letter written by one of the early church leaders, Paul, to a church in a place called Galatia. And if he was writing this letter today, he may well have added, there is no working class, no middle class, no upper class. He was looking for the dividing lines in society when he wrote this letter. But I think if you looked at a lot of churches around central London, you would struggle to find one where this would be true. You'd struggle to find one where there's a fair representation of working class, middle class, and upper class. The working class is massively underrepresented in church. I read a report a few years, a few years ago which said that church going is basically now just a middle class pursuit. 64% of the UK considers themselves working class. Only 38% of church goers do. 27% of the UK have a university degree. Have a guess at what percentage of churchgoers has a university degree. 81%. People sitting in this room are three and a half times more likely to have a university degree than the people walking down the road outside. As I said, I have a degree. I have a master's. I am currently training at Oxford University to become a Baptist minister. I am telling these stories and these statistics to myself as much as I am to anyone else. But what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about it? Neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male and female. I think if we're going to do anything about this, I think firstly we've got to show the equality that Paul talks about in this letter. And it isn't just about saying it. We've got to act in this way. We've got to act in such a way that shows people that there is no Greek or Jew, no working class, middle class, or upper class. We need to allow people from working class backgrounds to be who they are in this space and not expect people to conform to this middle class nature of church going. I thought a lot about this kind of idea of behavior of working class and middle class over Christmas when I was back at home. This is uh, a picture of me and my sister uh, just after completing Park Run near where we grew up on the Saturday before uh, after Christmas. I used to be a, a regular Park Runner. Park Runner is a weekly 5K race on a Saturday morning for anyone who's not come across it. Um, I used to do the Park Run at Burgess Park in Camberwell every week, every week. And I've done the one at home near me a couple of times now. Um, 
And the first time I went, by total coincidence, there was a special event there um, celebrating 30 years since a local guy, a guy called Steve Jones, had broken the British marathon record. And there was a guy standing at the front with a loud hail. They got the local paper there. They were taking photos. It was a, a great thing. Steve Jones's sister still lives locally. And she came and she ran with us. And the guy who was standing at the front introducing the event and telling people what the route was and all this kind of stuff, he was wonderful and hilarious. He was shouting things through this loud hailer, not even Mo Farah has beaten our Steve, and everyone would cheer, you know, all this kind of stuff. Actually, sad news is that Mo Farah now, since then, has beaten our Steve, but um, I think it's fair to say that whereas Mo Farah's training runs may be questionable, uh, there was nothing questionable about Steve Jones, who apparently broke the record after four pints and a curry the night before. But, um, <laughs> Anyway, I really enjoyed the run. Um, and when I went back this Christmas, the same guy was running this event. And I was telling my sister about it. And there he was with his loud hailer, introducing the event, explaining the route, shouting out things at the regulars, all this kind of stuff. He was genuinely great and clearly well-loved by the regulars who went there. He clearly had a great relationship with those people who ran every week. But his style, I was thinking about this talk. And his style is just unmistakably working class. The things that he said and the language that he used, it's difficult to describe, but I just couldn't see it working in Burgess Park. And as I was listening to him, I thought, imagine if he moved to Camberwell. Imagine if he was asked to head up the park run thing. I wonder if he'd act differently. I wonder if he'd talk differently. I wonder if his relationships with the regulars would be different. And then I thought, if he did, that would be a terrible shame, wouldn't it? But the thing is, sometimes I think that the church asks that of working class people. He can start coming to church. Yeah, of course he can. Everyone's welcome. But you've got to fit the mold. You've got to act the right way. You've got to say the right things. Now, of course, we'd never say that, would we? But I wonder if it's implicit in some of the things that we do, some of the ways in which we behave, how we lead, maybe. So how do we get past that? I wonder if part of the answer is not just that we need to create space for working class people to come in and continue to be themselves. And we need to allow people to do that in their own accents, too, don't we? Honestly, the number of conversations I've had over the last decade where people have basically assumed I'm a bit thick because I've had a Welsh accent, and then they've talked to me and realized I am a bit thick. But you know, it, even that pales into insignificance, uh, along with a female friend of mine who's from Basildon and has a proper broad Essex accent, and also has a PhD in behavioral psychology. So not only do I think we need to create space for working class people to come in and continue to be themselves, but I wonder if we also need to create leadership space for those from different backgrounds. We've started to do this in a few areas. Our leadership team here at this church is now more than 50% female, and we've made space deliberately for LGBT plus leaders, and also we're starting to do a bit more around BAME leadership as well, and I wonder whether this is the next thing. I wonder whether social class is the next area where we need to get to work. I think it seems like to me that in loads of churches, the best you can hope for from your leadership team is a lovely middle class person with a heart for the poor. 
This is Gustavo Gutierrez, who was one of the pioneers of a movement which became known as liberation theology. It's described as the clear and prophetic option expressing preference for and solidarity with the poor. It's the idea that the Bible is on the side of the poor and that this should underpin how we live as Christians. Now, this approach to studying theologies had a, a massive impact, particularly in Latin America and South America, particularly in poorer areas. And actually, for me, part of the reason why liberation theology is interesting is because it was developed in Latin America amongst poorer communities, as opposed to most other new theological movements, which are written up by an old, educated white man in a library in Oxford or Cambridge. But another of the interesting things about liberation theology is that its, its leaders are usually part of the community. Gutierrez is from Peru. And he said, I come from a continent in which more than 60% of the population lives in a state of poverty. And 82% of those find themselves in extreme poverty. This isn't a bunch of privileged people writing up theological theory about how the Bible is on the side of the poor. This is the people living in countries suffering from extreme poverty, writing up these theories as they put them into practice day by day, as they live it out. Here's a quote from Tissa Belasuria, who's another liberation theologian. Theology is significantly influenced by the interests and the concerns of the power holders in a community. Theology is influenced by the interests of the power holders. We see that today all across the world, don't we? Why does the religious right have so much influence in the USA? Because that's the theology the power holders want. Regardless of your politics, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump, I think we can all safely agree that Donald Trump does not want a theology which is based on expressing preference for and solidarity with the poor. This week, 5,000 Christians turned up to a church in Miami at an event that Trump ran for his evangelical supporters. Why does the religious right ignore the things that Donald Trump says or does which go against the Bible they always talk about and claim to believe in? Because when people have power, they'll do anything they can to keep it. Theology is influenced by the interests of the power holders, or in other words, the power holders choose the theology. And those power holders are very rarely the working class. But we, we have some power. In this church, at least, we have some power. So I think it's up to us to choose a theology of liberation for the poor. It's up to us to choose a theology, to choose an understanding of God which is based on something other than keeping the power in the hands of the current power holders. I think Jesus was pretty clear on this one. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus announces his ministry by going to the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, and he stands up and he picks up the scroll 
and he reads these words, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. I can tell you I've been studying theology for a few years now and that to me is about as straightforward as it comes. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the oppressed free. Gustavo Gutierrez said liberation theology was the clear and prophetic option expressing preference for and solidarity with the poor. Some more words for us as I finish. From Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. The church is at its best when it speaks up for those who cannot speak for themselves. But then I think there's a next step. Then I would argue the church is at its best when it then creates space for those people and allows them to speak for themselves. The church is at its best, not just when it speaks up for those who can't speak for themselves, but also when it creates space for those people to speak for themselves. So as I end, just one quick thing. How are we going to do something about this? I've already said that I don't think that Sunday services are the whole answer to this and there's a lot of stuff that we're doing throughout the rest of the week and a lot more that we could do throughout the rest of the week to build genuine relationships with those in our local community who aren't represented here and if you're interested in getting involved in any of this then come and grab me at the end or grab Fleck who's been leading the music this morning who's our community development manager and is already doing a ton of work around all this kind of stuff but while Sunday isn't the whole answer I do think that gathering together as community plays an important role. And there's a place for all of us as the regulars here, as the gatekeepers here, to create this welcoming space for everyone who walks through the door. We need to keep out an eye for all new people. But how about we make a conscious effort to look out for those who aren't like us, whether that's because they're struggling to make ends meet or whether it's because they can afford to spend 900 pounds on riding boots. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, neither working class, middle class or upper class, for we are all one in Christ Jesus.